you're listening to the Supply Chain Podcast, on this week's episode we talk to Richard Steele, Directing Manager at Delaware North America. We cover topics such as globalisation of supply chain technology, risk mitigation and the benefits of automation. It's a pleasure to have you on, Richard. Would you mind just giving us a brief introduction to who you are and, and your, your company? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Richard Seale. Um, I'm a Managing Director in Delaware Consulting US. Um, I have about 27 years experience delivering international SAP projects um, across Europe, um, the US and the APAC region. Um, for about the last 11 years, I've been based in the US um, and I've implemented systems for Kraft Foods, Carlsberg, um, the Boeing company. Um, Delaware as an organization is about two and a half thousand consultants based across 12 countries in the Americas, Europe and the APAC regions. Uh, the majority of our focus is on SAP, that's about 80% and the remaining 20% is focused on Microsoft and text products. Fantastic, so I'm, um, you know, looking at your experience, you've had quite a long time, <clears throat> excuse me, to, you know, view the industry, how it's changed, how it's evolved and what would you say in your opinion is the kind of biggest change you've witnessed since you embarked on your career in supply chain? The biggest changes I've seen in supply chain over the last sort of 27 years is really sort of globalization. Um, the supply chain becoming more international, the development of manufacturing in China, um, the, clump, the complex supply chains moving from China into Europe, into the US. That's where I've seen most of the changes. And then the, the technology that supported those changes. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time working on SAP systems. Um, those systems have become global. Um, they're supporting entire organizations across the globe. When I started, it was very much a sort of a UK-based SAP implementation. Then it went to a European implementation. Then it went to a global implementation where companies are running their entire operation on one system. I mean, this is giving sort of visibility into the extended supply chain. They understand what's happening, whether products moving from China to the UK to the US, there is clear visibility and understanding of what, what's going on. So those are, those are really the biggest sort of changes, the globalization and then the technology to support those processes. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that, Richard. And for me, I feel like there's a slight adjustment on that to come. You know, I don't think we'll ever move away from that global structure, but I think there, there'll maybe be a bit more of a, a balance between the proximity to supply chain and the cost um, from, you know, manufacturing in China or wherever it may be. I mean, hopefully there's a, a sort of balancing um, and people start to move back some of the, uh, maybe some of the production back to, uh, local or near shore i mean we mm. talk about sort of i don't think the entire manufacturing base could ever be no. moved back to china I don't, I don't think that's realistic in any way at all but i think there's an opportunity to move some of that uh, some of that manufacturing back locally maybe focused on critical components um, but i think there's i think there needs to be some sort of level of rebalancing um, mm. i think it's swung two way uh, too far one way and I, I don't think organizations have got the control and the visibility of that right down the sort of extended um, hierarchy sort of, I think a lot of organizations can see down the sort of the tier one and the tier two, but beyond that in the hierarchy, I think a lot of 
organisations lose the visibility. Yeah, and it, it kind of all ties in, doesn't it, Richard, because the technology is going to be so key in that visibility and, and proximity of essential parts, like you say, or perhaps PPE will need to be, they'll need to be something that's a bit closer to your location. I mean, it, it kind of already, already answers my next question, really, but just to kind of outline for me, Richard, how would you say people should be balancing that diversity between um, cost and proximity? What, what is the right balance? How do we go about assessing it moving forwards? Yeah, as I just said, I think uh, you can't bring the entire manufacturing base back. I mean, it's no. just not cost effective. No. Um, I, think, I think the key thing is you need to sort of, uh, as you say, you need to balance the risk um, and also the cost when deciding where to locate a manufacturing base. Um, I think one of the things that this thing will do, if you, uh, I mean, if you do try and move something back locally or try to relocate your entire manufacturing base, I think this will just drive up the cost of products for consumers. Mm. I, mean, I think it will reduce consumer choice and uh, ultimately will drive up local inflation um, in the country. So, I mean, I think this is where we need to consider whether you put, say, 20% of your manufacturing base um, near shore, um, try and have shorter supply chains, locally skilled resources, um, equipment tools um, available to be able to ramp up quickly in the, in the event of a crisis. I think that's one of the challenges that people have had um, recently is they've not been able to control their local supply chain. There's been examples of trying to source. I mean, I think it was the UK government was trying to source PPE from Turkey or it was passing through Turkey, yeah. <laughs> in Turkey for some reason. And it just, the local, the local governments in whichever country has not been able to control um, the manufacturing or the sourcing of those mm -hmm. products. Um, I think any change of strategy um, needs to, uh, needs to focus on critical products you can't I, mean, yeah. you, I don't think you necessarily want to be resourcing toys <laughs> Re, relocating the manufacturing of toys and things locally you need to understand which products do you want to bring back so yeah. whether it be pharmaceuticals whether it be sort of PPE um, but again while we say we're going to manufacture a certain pharmaceutical product we need to then start considering what is back down the supply chain um, yeah. the end. so within pharmaceuticals active ingredients where do those things come from so mm -hmm. i mean when when we talk about moving manufacturing onshore is that the entire supply chain of all yeah. the products and all the components that go right down the chain um, so there's there's a lot more to to this when planning to move things onshore mm -hmm. yeah no definitely and the, the term end-to-end -end visibility has been thrown around for a few years now but this has kind of really brought home for me and I'm sure for other people that like you say you know you may you may well be able to manufacture masks or whatever it, PPE gowns whatever it may be but if one element of that far up the supply chain is manufactured from one large provider in a different country you're not really helping yourself because you can't get the basic elements can you so it's um it's all about that end-to-end -end visibility and technology. There's a lot of emerging tech as well that's going to be able to predict um, the shortfalls in manufacturing at the top end and how that will actually impact your business and your delivery to your consumer. And I'm, I'm hearing stuff about that. So I think that's a good place to watch moving forwards. 
Yeah, I think another another thing is to uh, is to sit and think about how much inventory or stock you hold. I mean, I'm amazed that uh, whether it be in the UK or the US, everyone's running around like headless chickens going, where do we source these things from? Why isn't there a, a set of products identified as critical, such mm -hmm. as masks, gowns, and they hold an inventory somewhere of one month, two months, three months, or whatever they deem the time to be to be able to ramp up manufacturing for these products locally yeah. and then cycle through those products. I mean, they're not stored uh, with an expiry date. Well, they have an expiry date, but you continue to consume those things, but you hold a stock of, uh, of yeah. inventory of three months. So you, you, what, what I'm amazed about this whole process that's gone on recently is the lack of planning and forethought that's gone into this. And this is just what any business would do. They would plan, they would hold an inventory level, they would hold a certain supply, a number of days worth of stock to be able to source. And unless that happens, I mean, instantly switching on manufacturing is, is just doesn't happen. It takes time to ramp these things up and mm. people need to plan, plan, plan for these events. Yeah. Yeah, and I think moving forwards, we'll definitely see more pandemic clauses and planning and risk uh, assessments when we're moving forwards and you know a lot of companies are really focusing on their resilience if something like this were to happen again um, so hopefully it'll be a change for the better um, but it'll be interesting to watch that space and see how different companies handle it yeah I, I think I think yeah risk mitigation um, I mean again this pandemic another pandemic might not come around for another 20 years and in a typical manner everyone will get bored of it they'll forget about <laughs> the last problem um and oh they'll well we're going to save some money and we won't hold the stocks it's about i think um it's about putting into governments putting structure in place to actually plan and prepare for these mm. events without being over the top and mm. it's about careful planning but holding, as I say, holding a stock of three months and you're continually recycling through that stock, taking from one end and you're replenishing from the, uh, into the other end. So I think it's, it, is just, it is just forethought and planning that's required at all levels, government uh, and in organisations. Yeah, no, definitely agree with that. In terms of what you feel will be the key changes across the industry as a whole, so not just looking at manufacturing, not just looking at PPE, within supply chain and procurement, what do you think would be the key changes that we'll see off the back of this pandemic? I mean, some of the, the sort of um, the key changes, I think, uh, I think one is sort of the way people are going to work. Um, yeah. I, I'm not entirely convinced that everyone is going to work remotely forevermore. Um, <laughs> I, made, uh, I made a comment, I think the other day on, a, on somebody on a LinkedIn thing. I think people, want to get back to the office yeah. um, I think people like socialization mm -hmm. people want to have a coffee people want to go for lunch um, I think there might be a happy balance here where people will be able to work more remotely um, and uh, and spend some of the time in the office that will allow some organizations to reduce their, their costs and their overheads um, mm. when it comes to office but I, I generally think I think there'll be a mix, a happy balance between working remotely and working at the office. Yes. Yeah. I think there needs to be a hybrid, doesn't there? Yeah, I think people are eager to get back to work or get back to an office environment. I mean, yeah. I know, I, someone said to me the other day, 
um, the commuting. Uh, it was a time to think and break the day into components. Yeah. At the moment we're just we're just getting up, starting <laughs> Zoom calls, zooming all the way through the day, and then having dinner and going back to bed. Rinse, repeat. Rinse, repeat. It's the coming yeah. and weekends emerging into the week, which again is I don't think it's necessarily healthy. No, I mean, we spoke about this last time, didn't we, Richard? Because I think a lot of companies have reported that productivity, yes, has gone up. But is that sustainable or healthy long term? Because is it just a case of people not realising that their work time is bleeding a lot more into the personal time? And over a short period, that's not going to have a huge impact. But if we're looking at a long term plan, that's that's maybe not the healthiest or the best way. And there is always that need for human interaction. I mean, I said to you last time, I'm, I'm a bit of a homebody. I like to just sit at home in my comfort, but I'm dying to get back to the office and see everyone. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, staring at 20 faces on a Zoom call. <laughs> it's, actually, I, it's, it's actually quite tiring. Um, I've, I've started to turn off the camera and large meetings, basically. Mm. Um, it's, become, it's become quite sort of straining to be staring at a camera about a foot away. Yeah. Um, and... It, it just becomes more difficult. I mean, that's that's one element. I think um, when it comes to sort of sort of business operations and the way people need to change within the supply chain, I mean, there's the immediate sort of social distancing element yeah. of it. I mean, within warehouses, within sort of transportation chains, I mean, there's going to be a requirement to keep people segregated, and in warehouses especially, I think that that is quite a challenge. I mean, people are moving around picking items so it's whether you're using technology to try and segregate people you're trying to make people work down a particular aisle i mean examples in a in a shop basically when we've been into the supermarket the one near, near me has arrows on the you go yeah. up one lane down the other lane and up the other lane so you're not actually passing people so yeah. you organize warehouses with uh with some sort of discipline to able to segregate people or whether you use the software the digital sort of warehouse software to actually manage segregation putting people in certain locations within the warehouse so there's there's options like that um to try and yeah but i mean in the longer term um whether this thing disappears vaccine pops up and we get back to uh mm. the way we were before but I don't know. I mean, I'm, no, hoping, I'm, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping things get back to some level of normality. Um, but in the meantime, I think there's going to have to be some, mm. some management of, uh, of people and where they are. I mean, one of the things we've done in our, we've developed an app within, within Delaware ourselves, which is for desk um, booking system. Where uh, you yeah. book a desk, and then it tracks who was at the desk it tracks whether the desk has been cleaned it tracks yep. whether um so if there was an event where somebody did come down with it you could actually see who had been sitting at that desk um or who had been in the office on that day so it's a simple sort of uh, um tracing application um, for yep. the office so so one of the things that we've done within our organization which we're we're That's offering to other yeah. organizations it's it's definitely good to have that visibility of of where the risk or of infection will come from. And, and I know that a lot of the governments are mirroring that kind of thing too. So the, I'm sure you know, Richard, but the UK government 
is planning to do sort of a similar track and trace app for people who have to book pub tables and book car parking spaces at parks and you know but it all sounds a bit big brothery but when you actually think about it um it, it's a brilliant idea because it means that we can minimize the risk of of a second wave or you know more people getting infected yeah i mean i i went out to a restaurant last week in the u.s um uh, in a town called Waltham, just down the road, and it was like continental Europe. They'd moved the entire restaurant, the entire restaurant, out into the street. So wow. they closed the high street or the main street, um, and they'd moved all the tables. So they're all sort of pub benches, you know, the park bench type thing. They'd moved, they'd got all these lined up the entire street. They were about two meters apart. Um, and they'd uh, put canvas canopies sort of over the top of them, put little picket fences around it, and made it very <laughs> continental. But it was it was great. I mean, ironically, a lot of uh, there's not a lot of outdoor dining in the US. It's all indoor and air conditioned. But this is a move where they've moved the entire restaurant, the street of restaurants, out into the other street, and uh, it was it was great. Um, I mean, that was the first sort of social contact that I really yeah, I had. Bet. <laughs> I bet it felt great. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It was, uh, uh, but it was, it's interesting to see that as a, a point where they actually changed the way they do business, partly being forced to do it. Yeah. But I mean, the comment, I, mean, I was out with my wife and uh, youngest son, and we were, we were saying, well, this is actually great. Will this actually change? Will we do something different here? Will we mm. start? dining outside a little bit more just to enjoy the sunshine so yeah it's whether these businesses will take the opportunity to change the way they work as well mm -hmm. no absolutely and we're getting a little bit sidetracked i guess richard but it is so interesting to see you know this new way of living will it continue and what elements of it will we take um but coming back to the technology you know i i really think we'd be lost without it firstly and secondly you know it's going to be so crucial into how companies start to rebuild that resilience within the supply chain and um, what sort of things would you be looking at your side Richard to to focus on to create that robust moving part supply chain yeah I mean I, I um, yeah absolutely let's get back to the uh, <laughs> Sorry. The, core, the core point uh, I mean yeah absolutely technology will will form a key part of building any form of robust supply chain a digital core is is a common word or or the the it systems will be absolute right. foundation that supports the end-to-end -end supply chain i mean providing or reducing or helping reduce the risk providing better insights um to basically see and get better information and better uh, mm. a better a better awareness of what is going on with that supply chain and beyond just your doors going right down the sort of the end-to-end -end, sort of mm. back to us point at the beginning going down the tiers one two and yeah. three five if it's able to connect those multiple tiers together to get information i mean i think i think this this sort of solution or the technology needs to support sort of better planning putting in systems to support um, scenario planning to understand what situation might happen or what uh, how the uh, the world may work within that supply chain so a lot more mm. modeling um, yes. And that's that's using the data that's in that or rather got in your systems. And a lot of companies have got a significant amount of data at the moment, and it's whether they can use it better. I mean, the interesting thing about this this um, current 
crisis with regards to planning and forecasting. I mean, forecasting is, uh, is based on historic data. Um, if you plan based on the last three months, um, you might not be planning very well. You're not going to get <laughs> a good picture of what you're doing. So you might have to start going back to historic data that goes back six months. But again, that was, that was the, the normal three months ago. Mm. Very difficult to predict and forecast um, based on the current information. And we may have to do some, some statistical modeling, a lot yeah. more sort of uh, thinking about the way the world has changed. The market, the customers, the products, all those sort of things need to be considered in that forecasting model. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I mean, I, I spoke to um, a supply chain director who works in the UK. Um, I won't name drop, but this was yesterday. And he, he said that the only reason their company had managed to do okay through this is that when Brexit came about, they did a lot of contingency planning on what happens if there's a no-deal Brexit and they managed to leverage some of those contingencies to actually help them during the pandemic and you know there are some companies out there who yes have have put some time into risk mitigation which is brilliant but there are also there seems to be a clear divide between the companies that did okay and the companies that really didn't invest in that in that kind of resilience project in that technology um do you think that those companies will try and change the way they work or do you think they'll just be a case of inventory i think a lot of those companies will consider or try and think about sort of risk mitigation plans but i i think there's always a danger here of just going back to how things were mm. um, i think as this thing mitigates i think it's pretty normal human behavior to go mm -hmm. back to a lot of uh, ways of operating that were undertaken prior to this uh, this this crisis this pandemic that's mm. the challenge i mean it's whether is enough of a wake-up call for people to do something differently yeah. again i think a lot of the uh, the challenge of this is the cost i mean yeah. i was uh, i was talking to uh, uh within an aerospace and defense forum um a few weeks ago and they were talking about uh, a number of large aerospace organizations had mitigated or planned for Brexit by building wow. up huge amounts of working capital. Yeah. Uh, um, and that was now hindering them. Um, the aerospace and defense industry has uh, stopped manufacturing and they've got a huge amount of cash tied up in parts and components mm. until the, uh, and that cash can't be released. Um, no one's going to buy these products. I mean, they go into uh, the manufacturing of large aeroplanes. So, I mean, I mean, that's, that's the challenge. That cash is needed for something else, but it can't. It's tied up in working capital. So, I mean, while on one hand, preparing for Brexit and building up uh, stock and building up working capital was a good thing, this comes along and I think it's now been a big hindrance because a lot of that cash is not available to be able to do alternative yeah. things. And there are some, you know, you've just kind of made me think about the industries where they actually can't do much to mitigate this risk. And, and what I mean by that, for example, logistics industry, so freight, um, cargo, that kind of stuff, and also commercial airlines, you know, how, how do they look at mitigating the risk? How do they look at putting a plan in place for something like this to happen again? I mean, the only thing I've seen in um, commercial airlines is where they've been converting the commercial airline into cargo yes. planes. Yeah. Um, some airlines were actually removing the seats. 
others were actually stacking stuff within the seat so they weren't actually changing the configuration of the plane mm. um but again yeah what do you do i mean i've seen a number of uh, a number of programs and things on the number of planes that are parked up around the uk around the mm. us um and i mean there was another comment about that bringing those planes back online is going to be quite a considerable amount of effort sort of maintenance operations so yeah. i mean as those things do come back online hopefully the demand for uh, people who are specialized in that sort of activity um, are in demand again mm. yeah i'm i'm not sure how, no. how some of these organizations mitigate this when they're, they're focused on flying people around the world no it's strange and they're going to have to also you know similar to social distancing in warehouses they're going to have to figure out a way to minimize that risk i've seen some airlines plan to put sort of perspex cage around each um the top of each seat so that you can't sort of sneeze on the person next to you but you know how how viable is that long term i, I don't know i i don't think it is viable long term i mean these planes operate on a on filling their planes they, exactly. they need to, they need what is it um, load factors they need a high load factor to be able to ensure that they become profitable or they run out of profit. The margins are so tight. These are such high capital cost assets. Um, they've got to run at a high capacity to, uh, to ensure, ensure profitability. And that's where I think we've seen you stop the, uh, you stop the movement of the flights. Then these, these, uh, these large organizations require huge sort of government uh, cash, um, injections to ensure they remain as operating businesses yeah and do you think that in terms of business travel do you think that we'll go straight back to the way that we were or do you think that some people might be a little bit hesitant I mean I'm hearing some people saying that they will think twice about if they actually need to do the travel they'll only travel if it's you know because they've realized now that they can do things remotely for the most part. Do you think that businesses will be a bit more conservative as to when they travel and when they don't? I think in the short term, they will be, but again, mm. medium term to long term, I think people will get back to the same, the same habits. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced that a lot of people enjoy flying. Though, yeah. uh, a lot of people say they don't, they like going on these business trips. They like, uh, they like traveling to other countries, staying in hotels, experiencing the local uh, the local sort of culture whether it be traveling mm. around europe or traveling to the us a lot of people will get back to uh i don't think it will be immediately i think it might be sort of into 2022 before it, it recovers but i think there's mm. a I, I think people will get back to the, the the ways of working um yeah i think this will be blended i'll be blended with more zoom meetings more teams meetings mm. but I, I do think people will get back to uh to yeah. uh behaviors and when it comes to personal travel and things i think they will they will get back to uh the weekend trips across europe i think mind you i mean i was talking to a couple of people about their holidays in uh, in the summer uh, considering driving out to uh out to really? europe as opposed to flying mm. so i think it might be more travel by car in the immediate yeah. uh, short term yeah, perhaps. Um, I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, it's a good thing, but I'm amazed that Spain have decided to accept English tourists so soon, to be honest, because I saw some of the plans they're putting into place. And it's a bit like the, the supermarket thing, the warehouse thing, having to book their slot on the beach and, you know, make sure they, they stay in their designated area. And 
I don't know if I want a holiday that much to do that. <laughs> I think I'd rather wait. Yeah, but I think I think it's the recognition that a lot of these locations in Indeed. Spain rely massively yeah. on um, on tourism, whether it be from the UK, whether it be from Germany or whatever. Mm. I think they rely on the uh, rely on people visiting. No tourists, no restaurants. I mean, yeah. the whole the whole supply chain of uh, of everything just stops. You need the demand. We need the holidaymakers to make the whole yeah. place work. The hotels, the restaurants, uh, beach cafes, the car rental. I mean, there's a, a whole industry yeah. supported off the back of uh, people um, traveling for a holiday. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, you mentioned sort of car rentals and, and companies that usually rely on that human traffic. But I've, um, I've spoken to someone who works for quite a large sort of um, almost like an Uber service and um, they've actually repurposed their their um, drivers to deliver for um, commercial businesses instead so they're taking sort of shopping orders and going you know going to warehouses and picking up orders to deliver and they're having to kind of just change their pivot their capability slightly to suit the need that's actually there at that point in time yeah, I think the same thing here in the US. I mean, a lot of the Uber drivers are working for, I can't remember the name of the company, but they're providing that service where they're picking up the grocery shopping mm. and delivering it. So, yeah, they're becoming the uh, the delivery drivers. But I think, I mean, whether people will continue ordering online at the same volume, I don't know. I think a lot of businesses have been successful um, or been able to maintain their uh, sort of their operations by having an online presence so i mean just coming back to sort of the technology um i think companies which have had some form of digital platform have had the ability to be able to uh, transact online quickly have uh, have been able to maintain or continue their success i think there was a, a clothing shop that's closing down all their branches in the uk and they've been extremely successful through their online sales mm. so companies which have had that digital platform that digital foundation have been able to uh, to mm. transact and sell online have, have had an opportunity I don't say that's been the answer to yeah total success but they've had a channel which they can uh, they can sell and distribute through mm. no definitely well I think the the summary from from me would be that the overall change is that we'll have a greater adoption of technology because it's absolutely critical to survival in an instance like this. You may not use it all the time, but when something like this happens and no one can leave their home, you know, it really is crucial to keeping all the cogs turning. Um, and I think we'll also see people take this risk mitigation a lot more seriously and, and it being less of an added extra, and more of a crucial part of your business planning. Um, so more kind of resiliency tests and reports and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I absolutely hope so. I mean, mm. I hope so. I mean, people take this seriously and don't get caught out in the same way that we've been caught out this time. Mm. I mean, the other technologies which I think are, I think are absolutely critical um, or will be part of any form of digital framework going forward are things like sort of um, AI, artificial intelligence, whether you're using that technology to try and support some sort of predictions, start mm. better analysis on the data you've got to try and try and um, understand and make better decisions. I mean, that's that's one of the other uh, sort of technologies that might be uh, used more in the future. 
Um, I think a lot of things is about driving up productivity. Uh, productivity yeah. in the warehouse, I think there's uh, will be a focus on reducing costs going forward. And that's whether people start using sort of more AGVs, uh, automated guided vehicles, whether you start using robots, cobots, collaborative robots, whether start, people start investing in those sort of things to try and bring down the costs and increase the productivity going forward. I mean, and again, things like when we talk about the end-to-end -end sort of uh, supply chain visibility, do people start trying to invest uh, in things like blockchain technologies? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a lot of a lot of discussions go on about how blockchain could be used, um, but I think one of the challenges is making sure you, or how can you get a large number of suppliers and uh, and parties to collaborate together? Yeah. I mean, Technology is fine, um, and we desire that visibility down the, uh, the entire supply chain. Yeah. But using the technology and getting everybody to uh, get on board, I think, would be one of the challenges. Yeah, no, I agree with that. There are some companies that are doing just that and really trying to get um, a lot of suppliers to sign up to their kind of universal database, if you will. Um, but it, it begs the question: How do you get everyone everyone on it? It's not realistic, is it? Um, and also, sorry, just to go back to what you said about warehousing and automation for me if i was in in a kind of manufacturing industry or warehousing as a role i would be looking at what amazon's doing at the moment or has been doing for the last few years yes it's costly but i i would like to think that given the level of automation in their warehouses they really haven't seen much of a dip in the productivity at all uh, exactly they made a huge amount of investment up front and that has paid off um, they've been able to, in most cases, supply virtually everything yeah. on time and in full. Um, I mean, all the things that I've ordered um, have all been supplied yeah. near enough next day on Prime. Um, so there's, there's, they've, they've taken advantage of these things without this crisis. Um, they've, they've invested up front and the payback has, uh, has been shown mm. in the last two, three or four months and yeah. the amount of well, revenue they're taking is enormous. Yeah, I would even argue that the, the benefits financially have been showing for years because Amazon's been at the top of its game for a long time now. So I think, you know, it is, it's definitely a risk. You have to balance the cost of these upfront investments. But I think for me, as an outsider looking in, the the ROI is just huge on those things, um, if you can find the money in the first place. Oh, completely, completely. I've just been working recently with a company, um, a food manufacturer, and one of their locations um, is fully automated with AGV vehicles. Um, it's, it's fully integrated with their sort of digital back end. Um, it just shows, it's just shows huge amounts of sort of, productivity and yeah. uh, and optimization or allows for a great significant optimization within the business processes mm -hmm. yeah and I think I've also heard a lot of people say that they're going to be looking a lot more to external management consultancies moving forwards more so than before to really guide them in the best way to invest in that technology um, to create a smoother outcome moving forward so I think companies like you know the big ones like EY and um, Boston Consulting Group Accenture they're all doing loads of work at the minute on their websites about um, you know 
the next steps, the next things you should be looking at to, to really rebuild and make sure that you're resilient. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really about creating a foundation. And if you've got the right foundation in place, um, whether that be something like an, S, uh, an SAP system, mm. you can then extend and provide a lot of these additional capabilities. Um, I think if you're not in a good position with a very, a very good, let's call it structure to build off, yeah. I think uh, some of you may experience some challenges. Um, I mean, just, just touching on um, sort of tools and things, one of the tools, and I mentioned it the other day to you on one of your LinkedIn comments, is using Salonis. Um, this, is a, this is a great tool um, where you can analyze your existing processes. You can understand the huge amounts of variance and paths through your processes. And it's an opportunity to understand how to take cost out of the business. Mm. Um, and I think these are the types of things that people will be looking at, looking at tools to try and provide information um, mm. to, to be able to change the way they operate, the way to improve things again, improve the productivity and ultimately reduce cost um, yeah. which are out of the business, costs which can't be seen in a lot of cases. So this is a great tool. It analyzes the processes and provides some very good sort of insights. Yeah, no, definitely. And I've, I've heard a lot. Of, I said to you on that post, I said I've heard a lot of good things about Salonis and the work they're doing. And I've got a few clients that are actually working with those guys at the moment. So um, definitely a company to watch. And you just kind of tweaked my memory. I was talking to um, a chap at Gempact the other day and he he was talking about trying to shift his client's mentality from, from a cost cutting to a value giving with tech. And, and what he meant by that was that um, if they automated a process or a task and they freed up X amount of time, a lot of companies are now saying, oh great, we've made that more streamlined, but they're not retasking the person to actually take advantage of the time that they've created. And if they do task that time effectively, they can actually work on adding value back into the business on top of the cost that they've cut. And um, he's, he was just trying to explain that that kind of out of the box mindset and not just the initial cost cutting, but how you can use that to add value back in, top, in on top. He was really trying to sort of pioneer that change. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's a really good point. I mean, yes, cutting cost. I mean, quite often it's, uh, it's taking it's removing sort of activities which aren't required but if mm. you could if those individuals are having to spend all that time doing those activities are not required and they could be doing something better yeah. uh, and added value um, focusing on the customer um, I think that would be a, a very sort of a beneficial mm. beneficial to the business I mean adding adding value as opposed to just focusing on costs i agree but i think in the current in the current situation i think there will be a focus uh, on cost cutting i think yeah there's a, a lot of looking at, uh, at uh, sort of receivables and payables and making sure that uh, people are optimizing their sort of payment terms i think, I think people will be reviewing that they'll yeah. be pushing customers to pay they'll be uh, and suppliers will be uh, um, chasing well, suppliers will be chasing customers, but I mean, will, will yeah. companies be holding back, um, reserving cash, that sort of thing? So, looking at the balancing of receivables and uh, payables will be key critical mm. as well. Yeah, and I know that 
you know, we've both agreed that we don't see the remote way of working sticking entirely. And I fully agree with that. But there are some companies out there who are trying to renegotiate out of their real estate contracts at the moment. So that's a kind of initial way that they can reduce their costs by taking that portfolio down. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you're reducing costs in any way and whether that includes, uh, includes um, ending leases, uh, off, paying for office space, I think that will be part of a sort of cost reduction plan. But I, I think the, whether that's just halving the size of the office and then moving people to a 50-50, sort of 50% at home and 50% in the office, yeah, there's a, there's a yeah. start. That's back to our point earlier. I'm not entirely convinced that moving everybody offline at yeah. home will be uh, productive and beneficial to the business in the long run. Mm. And it also, like you were saying about the communities that rely on tourism, there's an element of that in the in the real estate as well. You know, in large cities, like I was speaking to someone in Chicago about this the other day, and he said most of the high rises, you know, that's that's their income is office space. So if we all of a sudden all half our portfolio, there's going to be a bit of a gap in that in in that market, and and people are going to struggle. And then I was a second to that, Sarah, who I had on the podcast last, um, she was kind of walking me through her thoughts on the high rises in the office space. And if we are doing this social distancing, how are those high rises going to cope when they've got a lift service and however many floors and they have to only have a certain amount of people on the lift at a time to get in and out for work? Yeah, and that's been a, a debate I've heard going on in New York. So a lot of people live in some, a lot of tower blocks, and that's where mm. the pandemic was worst in the US. I mean, not to say whether that's the reason why, but uh, everyone in New York lives very close together. Mm. And getting into a lift or an elevator is a, is a way of everyone's touching buttons. They are everyone's very yeah. tightly packed in. I mean, if it's not the same being on the, the London Underground, I mean, everyone is very close to each other. Mm. So, yeah, I think that will be a challenge to try and get some sort of level of social distancing. Mm. But I, I had an interesting thought as well. If, um, if we've got a, uh, a lot of offices, uh, a lot of companies are pulling out of their offices, is this an opportunity to uh, use as free up and use as housing? <laughs> Oh yeah, true. There is that convert it into housing. Converting into housing. I mean, if there's, uh, I mean, there seems to be always a shortage of housing. Um, yeah. Is this an opportunity to start using this as uh, maybe rebuilding it, returning it into apartment blocks? Mm. I don't know. But the thing is, something I mean, will fill the gap. Something will fill the gap. Something but the, will, yeah. the, tr the trouble with all this, where one business pulls out. There's always this knock-on effect and the cycle of cash. So, I mean, there are businesses which rely on office workers down in the city in London. Yeah. Uh, if they don't turn up, um, those businesses, sandwiches, lunch, yeah. they, they go out of business. Um, and then, again, the knock-on effect further on down the supply chain, the food service suppliers. Mm. It, it's a, a complete knock-on effect. I mean, the cycle of cash is... Uh, and the movement of money around the business is what keeps the economy operating. Yeah, and there's there's no kind of one size fits all answer to this because every industry has its own challenges um, and own unique issues when we come to to thinking about moving forward. So it's it's very interesting. I mean, I'm lucky enough to speak to people in sort of different industries as part of my my job and. You know, I'm always astounded by how different one person might be coping 
with it to to the next because the challenges are different so my point you know is that moving forwards I'm just finding it so interesting watching the speed in which these different industries come back on and how they actually maneuver around these problems and and really where we'll be in the next year or so yeah I mean I read this morning was it on the BBC was the um, purchasing index. Oh yeah. Um, there was uh, manufacturing has as on the rise again in the UK, um, mm. and I mean there were some people were questioning whether the validity of the other uh, numbers, but um, they were describing it whether was it a V-shaped recovery or a, a U-shaped recovery. So I mean it's it's interesting to understand how quick businesses will come back online and uh, to meet the sort of the pent-up demand. Um, mm. I saw the, uh, there was a picture on the, on the news yesterday of the, an enormous line of cars queue for McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I may have queued in one of those the other day, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, it just showed someone to take a, a, a film of it and it must have been, I don't know, three or four hundred metres long. Wow. Uh, it wasn't it was, quite that long, my one. <laughs> it's pretty enormous. But again, is there a, a huge amount of pent-up demand that will help the recovery yeah. um, when when things come back on? I mean, I think it was the, the announcement that some parts of the, the country and the economy are opening up again yeah. um, at the beginning of July. Mm. It, it'd be interesting to see whether the demand um, comes back quickly and then has a knock-on effect right down the sort of the supply chain. Yeah, or a second wave, maybe. Who knows? Or a second wave. I mean, there was a, an interesting just talking about businesses and how they sort of pivot and change. Um, so, and this will be interesting moving forward. I was again talking to a food manufacturer, and they were having to change their um, consumer side or their packaging to consumer units as opposed to food food service units, so large mm. bags of yeah, uh, yeah. product. And I mean they have had to very quickly shift over to consumer units to support home baking. Now, as we go back to restaurants, are they going to have to quickly shift back again to sort of food service uh, supply? Mm. So, I mean, they'll swung one way quickly. Are they going to have to swing the other way yeah. uh, just as quickly to, to meet the sort of pent up demand or the, uh, the change in consumer habits? Yeah. And I think there'll be some industries that experienced a little bit of a boom during the pandemic because there was a bit more of a demand things like gardening everyone seemed to be gardening you know people that are furloughed and people that wouldn't necessarily do it had so much time on their hands and um i think those industries will have will have really sort of skyrocketed and then they'll have maybe a bit of a dip when people go back to to work and back to normality yeah so again talking about the forecasting earlier this yeah, is I know. all this data <laughs> at the moment is really is, is not valid data to support forecasting models. You're going to have to remove this data. It's going to give you, I mean, the gardening example there says, well, we'll keep on selling at the same rate. But as you say, this could just, uh, everyone's back to work. Yeah. Um, a lot of people back to work, it could just drop off um, mm -hmm. the same way as it sort of uh, picked up. So yeah. the, the, the past will not be a prediction of the future. How to extrapolate that data in a way that actually forecasts what, what will happen in the future is going to be really tricky given the, the yeah, you, up and down just, Are you going to just have to remove this three months out of your models? Are you okay. going to try and go back to the earlier data and try and add some, some, uh, 
some values or some sort of uh, characteristics which try and describe how the economy is going to start back up again. Mm. And that yeah, would be no, a challenge. Definitely. And the, the running theme in all of this, Richard, I think you and me both, from the sounds of it, are going to be watching and waiting to see what happens. And um, it, it, it will just be very interesting to see how, how this all opens back up. So I think for me, we've kind of covered all, all the bases and uh, onwards and upwards, we wait to see what happens. So thank you very much for your time, Richard. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you, Caroline. I appreciate it and uh, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.